The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode of the Trident Room podcast, Trident Room podcast host Dan Peterson sits down with members of the Fleet Weather Center in San Diego. Good afternoon from the Naval Postgraduate School campus in Monterey. We're honored to have with us today two of the three members of the trial leadership from Fleet Weather Center San Diego, Commanding Officer Captain Kate Hermsdorfer and Command Master Chief Gene Douglas. First of all, we uh, want to take a moment and say thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to come out and do this podcast with us. Uh, I'm Lieutenant Dan Peterson, and with me as a co-host is going to be Lieutenant Colleen William. Um, so quickly we're going to go through the bios and just a quick introduction as to the background and get into the conversation of what the METOC or Meteorology and Oceanography community provides to the force to support. And we're going to talk about a couple of different things going through a lot of different mission areas. We'll, we'll touch on some naval special warfare, some electromagnetic warfare, uh, and then the fleet weather centers and the, the support that they provide as well. But we're going to do that through uh, a little bit of a different avenue. We're going to go through the, the personal side about the people and, uh, and the importance of the people and how they play into the mission and support as the METOC community. So without further ado, we'll start off with Captain Hermdorfer's bio. Captain Kate Hermsdorfer is a native of Simsbury, Connecticut, graduating with distinction from the United States Naval Academy in 2000 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Mathematics. She also holds a Master of Science degree in Meteorology and Physical Oceanography from NPS and Operations Management from the University of Arkansas. Before meteorology, though, she was a Naval Flight Officer and EA-6B Prowler Electronic Countermeasures Officer uh, with the Lancers VAQ-131 on board USS Abraham Lincoln, where she qualified as an EA-6B Mission Commander and participated in tsunami relief in Indonesia. As an oceanographer, she served as meteorology and oceanography officer, strike, op strike operations officer, and officer of the deck underway for USS Dwight D. Eisenhower in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. She previously commanded Naval Oceanography Mine Warfare Center, home of the world's finest mine hunters, at Stennis, Mississippi. Her other short tours include Oceanography Capabilities and Requirements Branch Head and Naval Deputy to NOAA Liaison Office of the Chief of Naval Operations Staff, Operations Officer at Fleet Numerical Meteorology and Oceanography Center here in Monterey, and Policy and Procedure Assistant Branch Head at the Naval Personnel Command. In January, she assumed command at Fleet Weather Center San Diego. Master Chief Gene Douglas enlisted in the United States Navy in Minneapolis on July 19, 1998, and completed recruit training at Recruit Training Command Great Lakes, Illinois. After completing Aerographer's Mate A School, or AGA School, he reported Naval Meteorology and Oceanography Detachment Roosevelt, or also known as Rosie Rhodes, uh, in Puerto Rico. Following his shore tour, he transferred to the Mobile Environmental Team, Norfolk, uh, also called MET Team, where he deployed on board the USS Anzio and the USS Winston S. Churchill and supported numerous cruiser and destroyer and short missions. Following his sea tour, he attended AGC School for forecasting in Biloxi, Mississippi. After graduation, he was assigned Commander 2nd Fleet at Norfolk as a forecast duty officer. After a short time on shore duty, he was selected for orders for Naval Special Warfare Development Group 
Dam Neck, Virginia. That's where Gene and I first crossed swords, or pass. Uh, while there, he served on two deployments in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and two deployments to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. He was selected to the rank of Chief Petty Officer in September 2010 while assigned to Riverine Group 1 in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He served initially as the Operations Leading Petty Officer, then took over as the Operations Department Leading Chief Petty Officer, or LCPO. From August 2012 to September of 2015, uh, Master Chief Douglas served as Detachment LCPO, detailed to Special Boat Team 12, and then Naval Oceanography Special Warfare Center Development or Department LCPO at Special Reconnaissance Team 1 in Coronado, California. That's again where we kind of crossed paths as I was at SDV Team 1 at the time, or SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1 out in Hawaii. In September of 2015, he reported to Commander Naval Meteorology Oceanography Command at Stennis Center, Mississippi. Space Center, Mississippi. There he served as the Battle Watch Captain for Commander Task Force 80.7, Assistant Future Operations Officer in Maritime Operations Center, LCPO, and later served as a career counselor and senior enlisted leader for the SINMOC staff. From February of 2019 until April of 2020, he served as Command Senior Chief at Naval Oceanography Anti-Submarine Warfare Center, then finished his senior enlisted tour at Fleet Survey Team, Stennis Space Center, Mississippi, where he was selected to the promotion of Master Chief. Master Chief Douglas currently serves as the Command Master Chief at the Fleet Weather Center San Diego in California. He graduated from the Senior Enlisted Academy and Command Master Chief of the Boat School and earned his Bachelor's of Science degree in organized organizational leadership from the University of Charleston in West Virginia. Could you share a bit? So welcome again. Yeah, thank you both for having us. We're excited to sit down with you today, and I think we're excited to do the podcast together in particular. And uh, it's always interesting to hear yourself described. So thank you for the, 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 those bios, which make my career sound much more exciting than, than it does on a lot of days. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you again for taking time out to, to take part in this podcast. I think we're going to kick things off. I, I know we read through your bios and a little bit about your military service, but I think we want to kind of gear it a little bit more towards the, the personal side and, and understanding who you are as a leader and as a CEO of uh, the Fleet Weather Center down in San Diego and what that kind of means. So we'll, we'll kick it off with a first question from Colleen. That's a very interesting careers for both of you. So now that we know that, could you share a bit about your personal and professional background leading up to your current roles and how you got here? So I uh, have wanted to be an astronaut since I was about seven years old. Um, I'm not an astronaut, but if NASA's listening, I'm still interested. Uh, but um, that started me on a path uh, to go to the Naval Academy, which has graduated more astronauts than any other institution. Uh, and from there, I became a Naval Flight Officer. And uh, at about the 10-year point, I uh, realized that I still really liked being a naval officer, but uh, wanted to do something different. And so I uh, did a lot transfer over to the meteorology and oceanography community. And I absolutely love this community. It is uh, an awesome blend of science and also the operations, really understanding the, that op the operational impact. So I feel like having come up through aviation, it's been a really nice blend of understanding what it's like to use some of the products uh, that METOC creates, but also... Um, helps me as a METOC officer to create things that are relevant, timely, and are going to make an, an operational and warfighting impact. Um, 
I do love the Meetup community, though. Small. I love that it's a small group. It's 300 people. We weave in and out of each other's career paths. It's it's been a great fit for me, and I'm really excited both for the track that I took to get here, but also that this is where I ended up. Yes, thank you. Um, so I I did not want to I, I did not initially want to do uh, naval uh, meteorology and oceanography. I wanted to be a marine. Uh, when when the Marine Corps recruiter saw that I was only uh, going to be a junior, he kind of shut his briefcase and said, "See you next year." Uh, so I went to so I went to talk to the Navy recruiter and um, decided that I was going to join the Navy. Um, the three choices they gave me was uh, was aerographer's mate, uh, corpsman, and I can't remember the third one. Um, but I remember reading the description of, air, of an aerographer's mate, and it was uh, I was going to get into a C-130 Hercules and fly into hurricanes and send back the data. And I was like, that sounds great. Sign me up. Um, to this date, I've only been on a C-130 Hercules with a parachute strapped to my back saying jump out. Um, so I, I never got to do that. Um, but I, I, I've, nonetheless, I've enjoyed my time um, learning about meteorology and oceanography. Um, I, I very much so enjoy um, helping shape the battlefield um, to um, put put uh, put guys on target and uh, make a make a uh, a difference in in different operations going around the world. So I think, Captain, you bring up a great point in the diversity in the background that comprises the meteorology uh, community and oceanography community. Uh, just between the two of you. Uh, you have an EA6B background and, and starting in aviation and then Master Chief. Uh, spent quite a bit of time in the Naval Special Warfare side of the house as well. Uh, so that, that just a range of gamut of, of understanding that, that comes into the METOC community from an operational standpoint. Um, and I think that really kind of helps to contribute how we shape our support to the fleet. So thanks for bringing that up. And I think also it's kind of interesting you brought up the astronauts piece as well and, and the, that uh, the academy has brought up brought up more astronauts than any other institution. And I think uh, NPS, which you're an alumni mm -hmm. also, uh, holds that title uh, for, for graduating uh, a large number of astronauts as well. So uh, it's great to see how that interest and curiosity in science has really kind of come into play for the community as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm, I'm very thankful that, uh, that that was the path that it got me started on uh, and for all the experiences that have come after. So was there any real motivating factor that, that like, yes, I'm really interested in weather or oceanography that, that kind of pointed you in that direction? Or was it just a, a path of fate that kind of aligned you into the community? And then once you kind of came into the community, how did that change or how did your perception of the community change once you became a part of the community? Um, I think that our community does absolutely incredible work and delivers capability across a spectrum that is truly mind boggling. Um, there's not a ship or aircraft that gets underway or takes off without us. You know, it starts with us. But beyond that, we are involved in every single warfighting area. Um, that said, I had no appreciation for that. I had, I did not know that. Uh, I think we have a little bit of a PR problem. So all the reason that I'm excited to do the podcast and talk about some of the great work that we do, uh, I, I didn't know that. I really thought it was just kind of a straight five-day forecast. Uh, that came out of the Meetalk community, and so when I came over into the community, I just my eyes were were open wide to uh, the breadth of the experience and expertise. And for me, um, I really love EMW electromagnetic warfare. So th coming from the Prowlers uh, that did electromagnetic jamming, 
um, it's been just a really great blend to be able to then apply a scientific understanding and prediction of the environment and how that uh, plays with EMW uh, and how you find an area where you can have uh, war fighting impact. To me, again, I didn't, I didn't necessarily plan that because I didn't know that that overlap was going to happen, but that's been really exciting to me in an area where I like to be able to rely on both parts of my career track to make a difference. Yeah, I, I really didn't have a, uh, um, a driving factor to get into this other than my recruiter told me to do so. Um, but, um, but the longer that I've done, that I've done this and worked in the, in the naval oceanography, naval meteorology and oceanography uh, community, um, is, is I've, I've, I've bought into more and, and, and continue, continually wanting to learn more um, and, and hone the craft. Um, um, I've learned some of my greatest lessons in forecasting when I missed a forecast. Uh, some, some harder than others, but uh, those, those are the those are the things that have gotten me to a point where I want to, um, or, or or the the times where I have missed a forecast where I'm like, I, I really dig in to figure out how or why did I miss that uh, miss that forecast. Um, for instance. Um, AG2 Douglas taking the uh, USS Anzio back across the pond, across the Atlantic at the end of a deployment um, by himself uh, without a forecaster. And a simple a forecast as simple of as uh, they wanted to do a steel beach picnic uh, on the way back. And they wanted a window of opportunity to do it. And I gave them a window of opportunity. So it's going to be great during this time. Uh, we'll call it 13 to 1500. And it quite literally rained from 13 to 1500. Uh, during that during transit and uh certainly uh, uh ag2 douglas was called to the bridge and had to talk to the captain about it um and then i immediately went down um to look at to look at everything again and uh and, and um figure out why and it turns out that um young forecaster missed a shortwave trough moving through the area or there that we transited underneath uh as we were move, make, moving making the move so uh that's one hard lesson learned um but it makes me want to be better. So, for our non-navy listeners, a steel beach picnic is a picnic underway. Um, but that was a great segue into the next question, though, Master Chief. Um, what experiences or milestones in your careers have had the most significant impact on shaping your understanding of meteorology and oceanography, and why have you stayed to be the senior influential leaders that you are? Um, yeah. So, so that's that's great. Um, the the challenge for me is what gets me to stay doing it, um, doing this job. The you know, as as previously stated, the 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 things that when you miss a forecast or or you miss something, um, trying to go back to figure out the the challenge of figuring out why you missed it and what you missed is 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 kind of the motivating factor for me, um, is to go back and figure out and and get better. I think it's kind of funny. That's one of the things that uh, METOC or the meteorology community is notorious for is for our own command picnics uh, and, and forecasting for our own command picnics. So if you're ever out there in need of rain, just uh, just try to schedule a METOC uh, command picnic and I guarantee it'll rain. I think we've all had some experience with, uh, with busting one of those forecasts. Absolutely. Without fail. Yep. Every change of command, every, uh, every picnic. Yep. We bring the bad weather. Um, Colleen, for me, I think um, a lot of what uh, what I love about the community, like I said, is that we're a small community, and man, I get to work with some of the smartest sailors and junior officers and chiefs and that and civilians, and that is really what, what drives me to keep coming back. Um, 
I learn from them every day and then hopefully I can bring back some of the operational experience that I've had or um, relay to them some of the experiences that I've had um, at, at the OpNav staff or at more senior levels um, to help connect the dots with what they're doing. But uh, it's the people, it's the small community, it is that understanding of uh, science in these very niche areas and our ability to impact a warfighting area. And I think that's kind of one of the unique things with a, you know, you, you bring up in the Metoc community being so small. Uh, and you mentioned it starts with us. You know, it, it, it's such an individual-based uh, kind of ideology, and, and that's one of the reasons why I really appreciate that slogan. Is that it? It, it kind of creates an environment of buy-in for the individual sailors out there, and, and we do have in the VTOC community just a number of outstanding sailors that that have that self-motivation and fearlessness to go out there and interact with with a captain or an admiral as an enlisted sailor to be able to provide recommendations on what's going to happen and shape operations as master chief douglas was talking about as a young ag2 taking you know a warship across the atlantic on his own uh, so there's a lot of buy-in i think with it. it starts with us and it's it's much more on the the person and the individual absolutely so jumping into what Fleet Weather Center San Diego provides for the fleet, provides for uh, Navy meteorology and oceanography, can you describe what the mission and objectives of your command are and what aspects of that as, the, as two parts of the triad that you really want to uh, push to the fleet? Sure. So Fleet Weather Center San Diego is in charge of uh, delivering safety of flight and safety of navigation and resource protection for an area that covers literally two-thirds of the globe. So from the west coast all the way over through the Pacific to the Suez Canal. It is just an absolutely incredible uh, span of the globe that we cover. And again, there's not a ship that gets underway or an aircraft that takes off without a forecast either from the, the watch floor uh, that's within our command or one of the commands that, that falls underneath us that we support. And so that is just... Um, I think it's an incredible um, mission set. I think it's foundational, not just to naval oceanography, but to naval operations writ large. Uh, the other thing that I think makes us um, really special and, and really world-class is that we don't just provide the safety of flight or safety of navigation. It's also that we understand the operations and where ships and assets need to be. And so we're also helping to provide strategic positioning, uh, access, maneuver, right? So making sure that if there is a fight, not only do we have people that are trained and did it in a way that was safe for the environment, um, but they can get to the fight when they need to be there. And then when called upon, we use the environment to create a tactical advantage. So it really spans a huge area as well as a huge uh, scope of missions. Um, but within the Fleet Weather Center in particular, it's really that safety of flight, safety of navigation with an eye towards operational impact. I, I can't say it. I got nothing to add, ma'am. That was yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when we talk about Fleet Weather Center San Diego and their area of responsibility, there's also a number of uh, subordinate commands that, that you're responsible for that kind of have unique mission sets. Um, you mind just kind of walking us through some of the other commands that, that fall underneath your command? Yeah. yeah, I'd be happy to. So underneath Fleet Weather Center San Diego, uh, we have a reserve unit that works with us, um, and they uh, supplement not only the watch floor, um, but also uh, a command called the ESCOT, the Strike Group Oceanography Team, which is another, another one of our uh, subordinate commands. And those are the teams that actually go out and deploy on the big deck, so your amphibs and your carriers, and they create that, um, that, 
that team that does not only the forecasting, but also, again, those, uh, those mission-critical impacts um, based on an understanding the environment. So that's the ESCOT. Uh, we also have the Joint Typhoon Warning Center. So this is the team that is doing, I mean, these guys are and, and gals are absolutely world-class uh, doing the forecasting for, uh, for typhoons, covering, again, that, that Western Pacific, that huge breadth of, of uh, the globe, and keeping our forces safe. And I'll tell you, like, there is nobody who does it better. Yeah. Um, and they are renowned not just within the military, but also within academia and, uh, and the public in general. And then the third or fourth command that we have under us um, is the, the NOAC, so the Naval Oceanog Oceanography uh, ASW Center. And they do primarily ASW. That's what they were built to do, so that's anti-submarine warfare. Um, but we are seeing that when they go out and support ships, they're being asked to do so much more than that. They get underway to do ASW, but then they are doing things like supporting uh, unmanned flights. Uh, they are doing uh, your full-spectrum forecasting, so uh, electromagnetic warfare, strike forecasting, safety of flight, safety of navigation. And so we're starting to really expand their mission set to uh, cover what it is that they're being asked to do and what they've already been doing. So really expanding from not just ASW to across that full spectrum. So I think that it's awesome you bring up the uh, the JTWC and the, the wonderful uh, institution and, and support that they provide. And I think my kids kind of first learned about JTWC and, and watching the movie Planes where Dusty Crop Hopper's flying across and comes into this interaction with a storm system. Uh, and they, they mentioned JTWC had put out a tropical uh, cyclone advisory alert uh, during the movie. So uh, spending some time out in Hawaii and, and getting to work with that team as well. Uh, you know, being able to relate that to my kids and, and talk more specifically about how that mission area works and, and what they do has been outstanding. So uh, it's really awesome to see that the different areas that uh, the MeTalk community uh, is, is in touch with and in tune with and, and how we support various different entities uh, as well. And they all support each other too, right? So we at the Fleet Weather Center are using the forecasts that come out of JTWC. Uh, NOAC is using them to do resource protection as well as to inform uh, setting up for anti-submarine warfare. And then the ESCOTs are in constant contact with us as well, using those forecasts and also, um, again, delivering that not just on an operational and positioning side, but also down to the tactics, right? Helping people pick which weapon system they're going to use or what time they're going to do a mission. Uh, it's really just incredible, and, and all those commands work hand in hand. So you both have alluded to some of the challenges um, in operating in the marine environment. How do we collaborate with other military units or government agencies or even international partners to better cover uh, a lot of that area and support the fleet? Yeah. Um, so it, it is challenging. It's data sparse, right? We don't have a lot of observations. Um, there's not a lot of uh, the models that are out there, right? They're not being fed by a lot of observations necessarily. And so it is so important that if we have uh, a data source or a capability that we're sharing it across our partners, and that, that's across the Joint Force, that's also working with uh, the National Weather Service. And I would say that right now, more than ever in my career, um, people are really wanting to partner. Uh, and it's been really exciting. So it's everything from um, making sure that our satellites are providing the information that uh, not only Navy METOC needs, but on the Air Force side, right? And we're, we're getting after similar challenges together. Um, 
And we're also seeing that on the watch floor. So we partnered with the National Weather Service to use their forecasting toolkit, which is called AWIPS. And um, it's really given us, I would say, decades of an advance in capability uh, that we're able to get into the hands of the sailors today. And so I think that appetite for partnership is the strongest I've ever seen, and it's, it's really exciting. So anything from data to capability to overhead coverage, right? it, it's, it spans the full gambit. Yeah. Um, one of the other, uh, backtrack just a little bit on challenges in the maritime environment uh, that I'd like to bring up is, is um, the, the use of UUVs and also the use of ships with much smaller limits. Um, it, it, it makes it a lot more work for a forecasting team to find uh, or, or to forecast for an area that has three foot seas um, versus an area that has 12 foot seas. Um, so that it does take a lot more time uh, in, in analyzing and forecasting um, in, in such a broad area um, to make sure that we're keeping ships with smaller limits safe. Thank you. You great, uh, bring up a great point. For those out there, uh, UUV is an unmanned underwater vehicle uh, that, that we use to operate to do survey work and, and uh, a number of different mission areas. Uh, but I, I think the, the big thing about the, the maritime domain and the challenges that it presents uh, is that the, a lot of the processing happens with a human. So uh, can you kind of talk a little bit about some of the things that our enlisted sailors go through for training to be able to develop the skills that they need to be able to support that kind of operations? A absolutely. Uh, so, so when an AG comes into the Navy, they, they go to A school and they learn um, some of the initial um, uh, requirements, I, um, how, to, how to take an observation, how to use some of our, um, how to use some of our uh, GUIs, graphic user interfaces. Um, to to make make briefs, um, then then they will go to a command after that, and they'll do their first tour, and start learning and getting some OJT on on what the science is behind forecasting, um, looking at models, um, how to how to paint an operational picture with that information. Um, once they get a little bit of OJT, then then we'll send them back to school, which is a C school. Um, C doesn't stand for anything. Um, it's uh, it's just a level of school within the Navy. Where they'll earn uh, an NEC, their forecasting NEC, um, Navy Enlisted Classification Code, uh, J00 Alpha. Um, while there, they'll spend nine months going through school and learning um, the science, the physics, the what makes a uh, area of low pressure deepen, fill, um, what what helps um, force the way it's going to move in the atmosphere, um, and 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 they take all that um, so. The, the science behind it so then they can come back to the fleet and continue to uh, learn more with the OJT side on the job training um, on how to apply that in, in a tactical application, sometimes at the operational level, uh, sometimes even as far up, uh, as high up as the strategic level. So, so you mentioned about the ANC school yeah. uh, for, through the military. Uh -huh. How does that translate into a civilian kind of accreditation, and, and does it really translate into a civilian application outside of the military? Uh, it, it does a little bit. So there are uh, some college credits applied to um, sailors that have the A school completion and the C school completion. Um, which credits are applied depends on the college that you would go to, the university that you select. Some um, and, and, and your career path, what your um, degree path would be, um, also plays a factor in which um, or if any college credits would be offered um, 
based on your experience as an AG? I think that's pretty important to highlight. I know that throughout my career and my service, uh, ANC school totality and duration is about a year long worth of training uh, that the military spends on on each individual to to get them qualified to be able to provide the support to operations uh, that we ask of them. And even then, there's afterwards, as as Master was mentioning, on the job training. Uh, but for me personally, I know that I leveraged some of those those school credits from the military towards my bachelor's degree, uh, and and forwarding my my own personal uh, education along the way, and it was really helpful for those accreditations to transfer over. It made it a lot easier for me to to work towards my bachelor's while I was in the military, which, uh, you know, it's a full time job with a with a full time schooling, so it can kind of be a challenge. But to see how the the military really trains. And, and translates to the civilian world, I think is, is really awesome. Yeah, and, and I, so I waited a long time to work to, to decide that I wanted to get my bachelor's degree. So I, I was a senior chief, had been in the Navy for 18 years. Um, you, you also will get some credits just based on other experiences in the Navy as well. Um, because I waited so long to get to enroll and dig in to get my bachelor's degree, I, uh, I only needed to take 10 classes before the, before the school that I went with. Um, gave me or, or awarded me a bachelor's degree. And I, I think education is such a huge part of the military these days and, and, and furthering education from, from all the way from our enlisted sailors all the way through our officers as, as we're sitting here at, at Naval Postgraduate School working on our master's degree for meteorology and oceanography. Uh, there's a lot of unique opportunities the military provides as, as Master was talking about a moment ago with unmanned un, underwater vehicles specifically. So you get a lot of hands-on training uh, with the latest and greatest technology that that's out there in the world um, that may not even be in an academic institution yet. So you get access to, to training on systems and capabilities uh, that you may not have direct access to in the civilian world. So there's a lot of opportunities that have been provided through education to the military. And with that education, um, we, we want to go out there and provide accurate and timely meteorology support, but we never get heralded for making a great forecast. It's always we make the news when we missed, missed a forecast or there's a severe weather event or a natural disaster. Um, we can't cover all of those training scenarios in school. So how do we prepare our sailors and our teams to go out there to maybe pre to prepare for those, but maybe more so how to uh, go through the event in the best possible way? Yeah, so a lot of that is a lot of that is lessons learned, right? I, I, so, just in in our experiences, um, the lessons that I learned the hard way, uh, I certainly don't want sailors and, and officers that come behind me to learn those same lessons. So, um, just as part of the just daily interactions and training as 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 a chief petty officer uh, and and training um, the team that I would work with to work up with to uh, certify for deployment. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of things and, and wickets that we have to hit, but there's also the lessons learned that I learned the hard way that I don't want them to, to go through. So I will, uh, I take that into consideration as well when we're, when we're going through a workup cycle uh, and, uh, and just hopefully in an effort to prevent that from happening to the next generation or the, the people coming behind me. So we briefly kind of talked about education and technology, but I kind of want to more formalize it into to how does that support our ability to improve our forecasting capabilities? And what does that really mean to us as far as operationals go uh, as we start using more unmanned systems? 
uh, how much of an impact does the METOC community have with uh, the use of unmanned systems? It's huge, right? I mean, unmanned systems are greatly impacted by the physical environment, and you have to understand um, both what the limitations of the unmanned system is, as well as maybe some, something in the physical environment that will help it be more effective, right? So um, it, it is more important than ever to understand and be able to predict the physical environment when you're talking about unmanned systems. Um, again, coming from an aviation background, uh, we talk a lot about see and avoid. So if you know that there's thunderstorms in the area, isolated thunderstorms, uh, as, as an air crew, you see them and you literally just fly around them, right? Um, some of these unmanned systems don't have that same kind of capability, so it is uh, even more important to be able to do a, um, a really high-resolution forecast, so really knowing exactly where those storms are, when they're going to start, um, and again, understanding the impact that it has on, on those unmanned vehicles. So uh, I think it is more important than ever and it's more challenging than ever. So. We have to have um, better tools that uh, allow us to, again, make a, a, a higher resolution forecast, um, but also tools that allow us to do it uh, faster or in the most efficient way that we can, right? So like Master Chief said, if we're, if we're looking at two-thirds of the ocean, two-thirds of the globe, right, in this, this massive area, and before when we were just looking for, okay, where do you have 12-foot seas or where do you have 15-foot seas that are going to affect our, our assets? If you're having to look at any place that there's five-foot seas, you are having to cover a lot more areas. Um, and so anything that we can buy back in terms of automation or AI, that helps us give that time back to that forecasting as well as developing our own science, our own craft, our own expertise uh, to be better. And again, to, to get that capability out forward. I'm gonna kind of pounce on a little bit and shift gears more onto your OpNav former role hat and how shaping requirements, for those who don't uh, know, um, OpNav is responsible for developing requirements for future capabilities and outlining really what uh, technology gets integrated into the force. So how, how, does, how does the requirements, how, how does it challenge you when you're in the OpNav staff to understand the, the technical aspects of, of each system and how it's influenced by the environment? How does the OpNav staff really challenge or tackle that problem set and defining it into a set requirement? Yeah, it, I mean, that it is really challenging. So um, a few years ago, the Oceanographer of the Navy released a letter um, which essentially says that every platform is a sensor. So in other words, if you are developing a new platform, whether it be manned or unmanned, you should have a sensor on it that, that provides real-world observations that can be fed back to the operator, can be fed back into the models, right? And that will help us, um, us as the METOC community, um, do give better capability, better forecast, um, more timely forecast, right? So using that mentality that every platform is a sensor, put some of that onus back on the program developers uh, because METOC community, like we talked about, is small. We're not everywhere. Um, but I would say the other thing that we really try to do is just connect with our peers across different, we call them ENCODES, right? So across um, the folks that are working on the submarine portfolio, folks working on the aviation portfolio, on the surface portfolio, expeditionary, and, and letting them know who we are and then trying to make sure that they come to us or that we go to them when we hear that there's a, a new platform being developed and, and, and make sure that we're connecting. But it's challenging. <laughs> uh, Ma'am, we had the opportunity to talk to you earlier today and if I understood correctly, 
you actually did your 04 milestone tour before coming to NPS, which unlike Dan and I will do after NPS, but I really wanted to know how your experience as an aviator prepared you for that role and all of those brand new duties on the carrier and uh, potentially how your relationship with the enlisted and with your senior enlisted on board helped you through that mission. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I will say that uh, coming from the aviation side, I was, uh, my 04 milestone was on an aircraft carrier, it was on the, the Dwight D. Eisenhower. So uh, I knew my way around. Um, I kind of understood the language. I understood the mission. Everybody who I worked for in my chain of command was an aviator. So all those things just helped smooth that transition. Um, understanding the mission, like I said, understanding the lingo, understanding uh, the layout of the ship and, and how operations work. So that that was a, a, a nice, um, I don't know if I was, I was at a running start, but at least, <laughs> you know, a walking start. Um, but my team was absolutely the piece that was critical to my success. So um, I could come downstairs and tell them what I understood of what the, the challenges were going to be for the next week or so from an operational standpoint, right? We're trying to do small boat exercises or we're trying to get through this big transit to be in position for the next exercise or operation or we really need to be able to knock out a couple days of flight ops to get everybody day and night qualified, right? So I could come down and kind of um, deliver that operational insight, but then the team was were the ones who took that and turned it into... Uh, relevant forecasts. And so I had to be able to trust them to do that. And uh, I don't know that I would have been able to help them even if I wanted to. So uh, yeah, they were absolutely critical to that piece. And so having that partnership of understanding where I could add value, but then trusting them to do their craft and, and apply their expertise was really important. So I think that, that brings up a great point of, of there's a lot of challenges that, that go into naval operations. And so I think one of the, the, the great questions is, is how does the MeetDoc community uh, manage risk associated with severe weather or natural disaster events? And, and how does that impact naval operations? Master Chief, you want to take that one? No, just see. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you say the question again, Dan? Let, sure. me, let me think about that for a minute. Sure. So uh, how do you manage risk associated with severe weather events and natural disasters in, in relation to naval operations? Yeah, so a lot of that is just trying to get out ahead of the problem as much as you can. So if you... Uh, are watching the models and you see that there's going to be severe weather um, coming through in the next few days, right? I'd say the, the best thing and the most critical thing that we do as talk is say, okay, where we think we want to operate at that time, that's not that's not a, a, a winning solution with what we're seeing in the forecast. So we can provide options, right? So if you move or you, you change the time, you change the physical location, so giving people a, a path to get the mission complete, but um, but while still avoiding that severe weather, but that really requires you to be out early in the planning process. That that's perfect, ma'am. The I, the the best way that we manage it is 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 one of the things that we that I tried to make sure that we impart on um, chiefs as we were getting them qualified to uh, to be master forecasters. Is um, we already trust that they can forecast the weather and prepare the environment. But where where we make our money um, is is the managing piece and by getting out ahead of that um, farther in the planning process and even um, understanding what um, what the operations that's going to happen whether it's small boat operations uh, unwrap uh, um, helo ops fixed wing ops um, understanding what that means and what that 
what the op what that means within the operating environment. Um, I th I think it's key that we are um, earlier in the process, so so much so that we are shaping shaping the operation instead of just letting the operation come to us. Then saying, uh, "Oh, by the way, Captain, um, we can't do that tomorrow because X X and X thing." Um, but if we're if we're doing it right, we're early enough in the in the process where we're we understand that this is going to happen, and then we can say, "Hey, uh, Skipper, I think um, you know doing this on seventy two hours out, vice forty eight hours out is is better." And that just um, it, I guess that's a, that's a, just a way that we manage the risk um, is, is helping shape when when things or where things will happen in the environment. It's incredible. It's great to hear from from both of you and, and your experiences in the community and education and, and how you came to be in the positions that you're at. And uh, we definitely appreciate your time for coming out today to do this interview with us. And uh, we're going to we're going to wrap up the first half. And, and I, there's so many more questions I wanted to ask, but uh, you know, we, we do have a, a limitation in our time. So, uh, you know, it was really great to talk about the Metoc community. So hopefully uh, people have a greater understanding of what the Metoc community is and what we provide to the mission. And also talk about the different educational opportunities that are there for for service members as they go out through their career. So thanks again for coming out and, and taking time out with us today. Our pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. This has been fun. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.